What does the word intentional mean to you, Pete? So for me, it means kind of being deliberate, like not 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 taking things by chance. And, you know, th- there's always that situation where people think if they either don't make a decision or postpone a decision that they're that they're not making a decision but by by default you are you know you're deciding not to decide right like i think being deliberate and intentional is about saying you know what i don't know all of the answers i don't know um i don't have 100% resolution on what the environment or the picture is in front of me right now but i know enough to make a decision and I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to move forward with intention. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 271, and this is your host, Ryan Tansom. And today we have on the show Pete Seligman, who is an investor, an advisor, speaker, and podcaster, and one of Australia's most experienced practitioners and a leading voice for search fund and entrepreneurship through acquisition, also known as ETA. And he brings all the insights and advice to this industry and community in Australia. In 2012, after a 15-year career spanning engineering, project management, investment banking, and general management, Pete took the entrepreneurial leap. He co-founded Alphen Group to acquire, operate, and grow small businesses in Australia. And Pete acted as CEO of three of the businesses for periods ranging from six months to three years, after which he successfully managed his own succession and remained on the board for each of them as a non-executive director, which is an amazing, amazing accomplishment given the fact that he wasn't the founder of these. And we're going to be talking a lot about that. And he he acquired their first business in 2013 and over the next four years acquired four more. And by 2020, they had successfully exited two of, the, of them and sold partial stakes in the other three. And today, what he's going to be talking about is his experience diving into the world of entrepreneurship through acquisition, again, also known as ETA, after leaving corporate America, what his journey has been like now that he has bought the five companies, been the CEO of three of them and successfully worked himself out, and just the fact that he's got a track record. And that's why I'm so excited to do this interview and to have you listen, because in my mind, the fact that he can speak to his track record and how he did this from funding them to getting into the businesses to working himself out and selling out is proving possible that entrepreneurship through acquisition is possible when you build a plan and then you execute like hell. And I'm super excited for you to listen in because Pete's got a lot of good gold nuggets and he is insanely level-headed and it just lays it all out on how he went about doing everything that he has done and where he's at today. Thanks so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here's my interview with Pete. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises 
that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Pete, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a nice, bright and early start here in Sydney, but um, we're getting off to a good start. The weather is just getting into that time of year where the mornings and evenings have that little bit of a chill, um, but, <laughs> but during the day it's nice and sunny and bright. So, yeah, it, it's a good time of year. Uh, well, and I'm glad you just dropped the fact you're from Australia with the accent, so everybody would have figured that out right away. And and uh, I don't know if I didn't tell you this when we were chatting ahead of time is that uh, I actually lived in Fremantle uh, right. for a half a year. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's so funny because it's just getting it's got that chill here in Minnesota, but yet, like, I remember when we, when I when I left, it was like. Oh, it's 40 degrees. And I'm like, so? And then I'm like, oh, that means 105. Yeah. Like it's re- it's the opposite over here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I I love it, man. Well, let's uh let's dive in, man. I I had came across your you, you launched your podcast and I somehow got exposure to it. My team reached out and you're talking about search funds and acquisition entrepreneurship, and you were uh what we would like to call the corporate corporate refugee. So <laughs> like Man, let's just start back. Like, give us the cliff note version, and then we can unpack the various parts of the journey. Sure, um, I'll keep the the young years relatively quick. But I grew up in Sydney um, on the beaches, um, relatively normal upbringing, I guess. Um, normal for here, anyway. Um, I studied engineering. Uh, <laughs> That's civil a engineer. good clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I studied engineering, civil engineering, so digging holes, um, which was good. And then I also did a finance degree. And basically went into about a 15-year career cycle in a range of things, doing engineering, project management, construction, and then kind of pivoted into investment banking here and in London, and then came back to Australia doing, I guess, what you call a a kind of corporate executive role in, in a large property company. And all of that, which I've been recently saying is just me proving that I've got a short attention span, is takes us through to about <laughs> 20, 2012. And at that point, I just kind of realized that that I could see the corporate career path ahead of me and it just wasn't going to provide that autonomy or the accountability that I was really after. The, the way I kind of describe it is it's it's less about you know, being in control of my own destiny. It was actually a little bit more about when I tried things and they failed, I wanted it to hurt. You know, if I fell off the bike, I wanted to actually skin my knee. Whereas sometimes in those big corporate environments, um, all sorts of things can go wrong, but because it's such a big beast, you're not really that close to the action. So without any knowledge of search or ETA or any of those um, terms, um, me and a, a mate of mine thought, you know, why don't we go and buy a small business to run? We, we had thought, should we start something? But I think with a bit of self-awareness, we decided that we weren't the startup people. Like we didn't have this great new idea that we wanted to kind of bring bring to the world. Um, but we knew that we knew <laughs> business. And, Let's and buy something knew- that can cash flow itself, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and we knew that we could scale things and build teams and build. Um, we we just knew that it wasn't going to be something that we started from scratch, and we'd also had experience at the much bigger end of town buying things, and so we just decided to go and start looking. So in in late 2012 we started looking, and in mid 2013 we bought our first business, and I dropped in as a CEO, and then over the next kind of four or five years we did it four more times, and so kind of come to 2020 and we had exited a few of them, um, which went well. 
And for the rest of them, I kind of made myself redundant effectively by by recruiting or promoting CEOs. And so as we sit here today, I'm, I'm on the boards of those and, and now keen to help other people follow a similar path. I, I appreciate that overview, Pete. And I think about um, how many different directions we can go with this conversation and just kind of set the stage as you and I were chatting ahead of the time is this is for anybody that's got a business that wants to sell. A lot of people want to acquire on the way to selling and or people that are listening that want to buy a business. I mean, it's both sides of the same coin. And to start back, <laughs> I got to ask you, you went from digging holes, as you put it, to becoming an investment banker. How did that dot get connected? And the reason for the question, Pete, is that the the understanding value and valuations is one of the biggest components that you know we've integrated into this podcast for five years. And it's like, because that's it all starts there, whether you're buying or selling. And so like you got a taste of that before jumping in. How the heck did you go from digging holes to investment banking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I call it digging holes. Um, not that I was actually holding a shovel, but but it's because <laughs> it's because quite often these days, in particular, when when you say to people, "I'm an engineer," they think about all sorts of potential things. You know, software engineer, um, biomedical engineer, chemical engineer, like all. And I was a civil engineer, so I, you know, I was designing bridges, buildings, tunnels, that kind of thing. But but the reason why it gave me that opportunity. I, <laughs> I already knew that I was interested in finance, so I'd already done a degree in finance as well as a degree in engineering. <clears throat> and in about 2000 and, well, from from late 90s to early 2000s, a lot of the investment banks were getting very, very interested in infrastructure. So in particular in Australia, a bank um, called Macquarie mm-hmm. Bank, um, which is now a, a global investment bank, um, was very, very interested in in acquiring large pieces of infrastructure and then effectively renting that back to the people or the governments. And in doing that process, they had to go through due diligence on the acquisition of those pieces of infrastructure. And so they started recruiting people with engineering, particularly strangely civil mm-hmm. engineering backgrounds, to do due diligence on infrastructure acquisitions. So that was my angle in. Um, mm. But it's funny because when I was in engineering, um, because I had a finance degree, they called me the finance guy. <clears throat> and then when I joined the investment bank, because I had an engineering degree, they called me the engineering guy. So <laughs> I was always, I was never kind of the same as anyone. I always kind of would go into a particular rock and be the outsider. But yeah, so that that was my way to to get into the investment bank. And then, and then after I was in there, primarily looking at infrastructure to begin with, um, I then had the opportunity to kind of stick my nose into all sorts of other things like equities and stock lending and um, property lending and all sorts of other parts of the investment banking process. So then where did you go from there? Like when you decided, okay, like making the plunge, you know, pulling the ripcord, I don't know if you got a family or what, first of all, I can't imagine just, even if it's just you, like how terrifying that is. And then searching, there's probably a couple of things that you could, I'll let you kind of just pick the order, but like you take in the plunge, what made you do that? But then also finding and assessing the deals and then funding them. Like what was your approach towards that and how maybe how has that changed over time? Sure. So so I think taking the plunge is an interesting one. Um, so at the time I had a, a, a two-year-old or a two-and-a-half-year-old and a six-month-old, um, so two, two young kids, uh, a, very, <laughs> a, a very supportive wife. Um, uh, but, but I think we're in a situation where we had enough 
kind of saved up that had provided a little bit of a landing pad, if that made sense. So it provided a bit of runway. So so the equivalent mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. kind of the search capital that searches might raise, we had a little bit of that of our own. Um, so I could kind of have that conversation with my family to say, look, I've got an amount of money and an amount of time. And if I burn through both of those, I'll go back and get a job. If I don't, then I'm off, right? So so we, we kind of had this point of no return discussion. And also at the time I was 35, so kind of mid early, early to mid-30s. And so if, if everything kind of goes wrong in your early to mid-30s, there's still plenty of career left if you need to build stuff back again. So I kind of thought if, if it was ever going to be the time to to take the risk and for it all to fall apart, there's, there's enough runway to build it back up again. So, so there's definitely that risk. I think the other thing, and you, you read a lot about it in the search journals around partnered search. So I think the fact that I was doing it with a good mate of mine, we were kind of both jumping off that cliff at the same time. And so, you know, you could look each other in the eye and go, mm-hmm. you know, are we going to, are we going to do this or not? And luckily it wasn't like jumping into the pool with my kids where they count to three and I jump and they don't. So yeah, we, we, it was, it was useful. <laughs> it was useful to have um, someone, someone next to you to, to do it alongside. So yeah. So like, I think the thing that I definitely say to people that are thinking about it is it's a whole of family decision. So you need to make sure that you've got the support of your partner and the other important people around you when you do it, because it's not just like taking another job. It, it is a whole of kind of family decision that you need to make sure that you've got clarity on. So I was going to say, like when you guys were, you, you got a little bit of, like you said, a little bit of money and a little bit of time and you're, you, you had like kind of that allocated, what was the process you and your mate went through to say, this is the type of business, mm. this is the size, and this is the deal structure. Yep. And then what was the vetting out process? Because I think this is relevant for both sides of people that are looking to buy, but also people that, you know, get the their door knocked on from people like you, mm. like understanding both sides of the coin are just are super important. Yeah. So, so I think a, a few of those, a few of those parameters were relatively easy. Like, so what size of business? We knew that at that point in time, we didn't want to raise third-party capital because we um, wanted to, Not that was not only an autonomy thing, but it was also, frankly, just a, a prudence thing. We, we didn't want to go spending other people's money when we hadn't had a go <laughs> proving that we could do it ourselves. So so we knew we knew how much money we had and so that kind of put a cap on it. I mean, sometimes I explain it to people like when you're going to go and buy a house, you you know how much you've got to spend. So you kind of just put that limit on it, right? So so that kind of set the size. We knew that we didn't want it to be too small either because then you kind of don't have any existing machine that you're actually going to perpetuate. You actually really are starting from nothing. So that there, there was kind of a size range that that helped us with. In terms of what type of business? Well, we definitely knew that I was an engineer, right? And so I think technical engineering services, products, manufacturing, fabrication, all those kinds of businesses were things that I could understand or learn to understand, even if I didn't necessarily have a pure expertise in them already. And interestingly, my my business partner, he had come from 15 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a as an accountant in in M and A and transactions, so he he brought a lot of that expertise, but also well, in that's the helpful. Years, 
It is very <laughs> helpful. In, in the years in the years leading up to it, though, <laughs> he he had also done um, a fair amount of his work in kind of smaller, mid-sized industrial businesses. So so it, that overlapped also worked quite well. So so I think we're looking for businesses of a certain size capped by how much we as a pair had to spend. We're looking for businesses in an industrial kind of engineering space so that at least if we didn't know them on day one, we could learn them. So we weren't looking for retail FMCG kind of software like anything like that just yet because we wanted to be really confident we knew it. Mm-hmm. Very different to a lot of what search will tell you. We did look for something that was just in Sydney. So so we didn't, we both had young families. We weren't going to uproot them. We, we both have, I mean, my wife is a chartered accountant right. um, and, and his wife is a professional lawyer. So both of them have like had career paths and all that kind of thing that we weren't going to uproot. So that also put a kind of regional uh, boundary mm-hmm. on it. So that that kind of was the starting filter. You know, we knew where we wanted to buy, we knew what size, and we knew kind of what sector. And that was probably as much as we trimmed the search. After that, we just sucked in as many businesses as we could using those filters and then started to look at them. At that point, we we kind of had an approach that we call this 555 approach. <laughs> um, and, and the way that we define that is it's five minutes, five hours, and five days. And obviously those timeframes are, are not accurate, but they're representative, right? Mm-hmm. So in in the five-minute test, um, when you first get an IM or a, uh, a document that's discussing the business for sale, you can spend five minutes understanding kind of three main things, which is one is, is it in the right industry? Like, is it generally in an industry that is suitable for you and in an industry that isn't massively running backwards? <laughs> it, doesn't <need laughs> to have, it doesn't need to have huge tailwinds, but you definitely don't want to be swimming against the current, right? So is the industry generally okay for you and for itself? The second question is, does this business have something special about it within its industry. Now, that doesn't need to mean that it needs to be unique and have no competition, but we liked those businesses that have that are more than just the generic form of what they are. So, for example, the first business we bought, you could put under the banner of electrical services on mining sites, but actually what it does is the calibration of the measurement instruments. So, it's something a little bit special within the realm of electrical services within mining, right? Oh, it's so, super cool. Yeah, so it means that when when that business turns up on site, it's just that little bit special, more than just all of the other electrical services that turn up on site. Um, <laughs> and that just gives you a little bit um, better opportunity to to offer services at a premium to make sure you're attracting the best of um, breed of people within that industry and those kinds of things. So that's question number two. Is there something kind of special? Um, and question number three is what difference am I going to make? You know, like if there's nothing that I can do that's going to make it any better than anyone else, then how am I firstly going to compete in the bidding process and secondly going to make anything of it after I've bought it? So so that kind of five-minute test is kind of industry, 
is there something at least a little bit special about the business and is there something that I personally can bring to this because that's the reason why I'm buying it? I love those, man. That super easy to just then like because I can – and I'm sure you got it rattled right off the top of your head, but how many how many deals you look through? I mean, it's it all is, about time, yeah. right? And how, I mean, like you said, time and money, and there's a direct correlation yeah, I mean, between the two. Like, <laughs> I, I got to say, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the numbers that I remember well enough is it would have been in excess of 200 businesses in a six-month period. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it would wow. have been, it would have been about... It would have been close to 50 of those we would have actually looked at in, in a fair bit of detail and about 15 of them we would have had extensive conversations. We put in offers on five and it ended up buying one. So that that's that was kind of the pipe if you think about that kind of process. Say, yeah. Sales 101, uh, right? It's all about the yeah. numbers. Fill yeah. the funnel. Yeah, it's, it, and it's, <laughs> I mean, I was speaking to a searcher just recently here in Australia who has just acquired his business. And he comes from a sales background and he said, yeah, one thing about the search process for him was um, there's a lot about it that, that maps to sales, that that pipeline process, rapport building, um, you know, rejection handling, all, all that stuff is, um, is very similar. <laughs> yeah. Except you're, you're, you're just be- – the, the difference is you're begging someone else yeah, exactly. to take your money. Yeah, yeah rather than trying to <laughs> – Versus it, yeah. in sales, you're like trying yeah, to usually exactly. take someone. Exactly. So um, – <laughs> So yeah, so oh, that's so awesome, I mean that man. that's that the first of the five is that is that five minute process those three questions. The next two bits are actually quicker to describe than the first one. Um, so the, then what you do is if it passes all those tests, a lot of people what they the mistake I think a lot of people make at that point is they delve really really deeply into the numbers. Now I think the numbers at the high level you need to make sure are okay, but I wouldn't jump into the numbers next. The, the five-hour process, the middle five, is actually all about the people. So so the next thing that we try to do is after we've ticked the box to say, yeah, this is generally a business that looks like it's right, it's met kind of all our filters, and let's just assume that the numbers are right from what they've told us. What we're going to do now is just spend as much time with the people as possible, and that's with the vendor, regardless of whether or not they're fully exiting or staying or transitioning or whatever, but also with a, a, as many of the people in the business as possible because, as you would well know, businesses of any size but particularly businesses of this size are all about the people. And if if you can't see a way that you can work with those people in that team in a successful way, then it kind of doesn't matter what the numbers look like. So. Right. And like, and, and it's not even just like working with the people. I literally have a, a client that's going through a training, bought a business and one of the main engineers mm. died uh, mm. like two months later. I mean, like there's no way you could predict that, but like, I think the challenge with these size companies that you're talking about, call it what, yep. five to 30 employees. I mean, like you lose a couple and that's a big percentage of the yep. overall employees. Like it's a big deal. Even if it's, the own, I mean, if the owners remove themselves, it's still highly yep. reliant uh, to keep that cash yep. flow on the yep. people. You, you really need to understand that dynamic. And and it's a difficult one, I think, if I flip to the sell side. So, so thinking about it from the perspective of the business owner that's selling their business, in this part of the process, it's quite challenging for them because they're trying to work out how much they want to reveal to their team at this stage. 
you know, it, mm-hmm. they've got someone on the outside coming in saying, look, I, I really like the look of your business. I'd love to spend a bunch of time with your people. And the person on the sell side thinking, well, I'm not sure if you're going to be the person that's going to buy my business. I don't want to waste the time and energy of my people talking to you. So I, I think it's understandably an interesting. Or less, or let alone yeah. tell them. Yep. Right. I mean, like, I mean, it's like the even telling them and they're, and this is, like, sorry to interrupt, but <clears throat> like, even like, I think about like all the people that we've worked with and it's like, okay, so Pete and his partner got this awesome website. looks like, yep. the, and I don't know if you guys did this or not, but we see search funds all the time pop out. Awesome website, Harvard MBA and like got family office money. And they're like, yeah, well, so like, can this yep. person handle, you know, Kathy and Joe who are going to be, you know, harassing them every day and they're going to treat my baby correctly and and give me the money I need. (laughs) So there's like this constant like Absolutely. And and I think that that's where a lot of it comes down to time. So it's like when you're dealing with, um, I read, you know, when you're dealing with kids, right? Um, So raising kids, they there's this concept of quality time and I was reading in a book the other day it's it's not actually about quality time it's just time right so so you know in order to in order to <laughs> spend good time with your kids you actually have to spend a lot of time with your kids right because you'd never know when the quality is going to show up um and and, and it's similar with this relationship building process with the vendor you know, it's not about just saying okay we need to make sure that we're going to spend half an hour here and half an hour there or whatever you know, it, it can take a lot of iterations and a lot of time. So, but by way of example, that 200 to 50 to 15 to 5 kind of process I went through, of the last five on which we submitted an, an offer and we bought one, one of the others in that group of five, we bought two years later. And and because it was in that two-year period that we just continued building that relationship to a point where those sellers got the comfort that we were the right people. And so so I mm-hmm. think it can just be time uh, that you need to spend with the vendor and then getting them comfortable and then getting them comfortable to introduce you to their people. And and so that middle section is just all about people and, and it's really just about saying, are these people that I think I can comfortably work with and, and grow and build and, and is it a culture that either doesn't need to be a culture that you necessarily love because part of what you do might be to continue to grow that culture, right? But it needs to be a culture and a, and a team mm-hmm. and a group of people that you know that you can continue to build on and work with. And, and, and from, from mm-hmm. the vendors. Isn't it crazy? Like uh, there's a, there's a gentleman, I don't know if you ever heard of the name David Horsager, Pete. Um, he wrote the book called the trust edge and it's amazing, dude. Like, like everything boils down to trust. I mean, literally, if you like dove down into the concept of even money, money is just about exchanging trust and value back and forth. And like, it's just like you have so many stakeholders, so many things, different visions, and you're all trying to like marry this all up and then pass the dollars back and forth at the last second. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a it is, high stakes it deal. Is. So yeah, and then if you make it through stage two, the five hours of people, um, it's then five days. And the reason why the five days is so long is because this is <laughs> what I'd describe as the relatively boring part. This is where you actually do like grind through the numbers, you know, work out the documentation, negotiate the legals. You know, that's actually the real kind of you're appointing advisors, um, getting attorneys, all that kind of stuff. And that's the bit where you would hope that by the time you get to that stage, you've pretty much got a deal done. It's really then just about going through the confirmatory 
process and the documentation process and, and getting to the mm-hmm. end of that transaction. Super interesting, man. I love the frame. I, I'm a big, uh, I, I'm a geek and just love frameworks because it's just how do you, how do you quickly think and then make decisions to, to learn whether you're in the right direction or, or go in the wrong direction um, as fast as possible. It, Going back to some, some of the, I got multiple questions about like your experience and your four businesses. Um, and then also just like other searchers. If like, when I look at like the size of companies, so the, you covered the industries and I think the people's skill sets are important and then like what uh, their ability to learn, et cetera. But when I think about like the EBITDA and the cash flow and how they're structuring these deals and I watch so many inefficiencies in the marketplace, Pete, like we're like, so in the U S and I don't know how, if this is a, in Australia, but yeah. there's the SBA loans, people can go and buy the companies yeah. 90, 10 for debt to equity. And you're like, geez. And then you got to be able to like, you, so like to be able to look at a business and acquire it and then hire a GM at like 110,000, $120,000, you like, and service your debt and pay your taxes. You're like, you could go buy a $2 million business and literally only make 50 grand a year in mm-hmm. cash flow. And you don't have enough money to reinvest in like, therefore you have to go and be the CEO and owner. And then do you then grow to then afford the GM or like, how did, how did you solve that? So, problem? so I definitely think when you, I mean, one of the, one of the things about this part of the marketplace, so in Australia, which, so the numbers are relatively similar. Some of the multiples on valuation are a little bit different because the market dynamics in the States is different to to Australia. We don't have SBA, so we don't have that kind of fuel coming from um, those debt facilities. We do have debt, but it's nowhere near that highly geared. Mm. So <laughs> it's nowhere. Yeah, near so, that so we don't have that kind of fuel added to the fire. But I mean, in in Australia, so so the the main thing I think is this kind of mechanic where if you get earnings kind of a four, five, six million dollars at the earnings level, then there's enough of a machine there that you can actually have mm-hmm. private equity and kind of third party funding coming in that can still make enough money for itself whilst it's providing enough resourcing for the business to grow, right? So so then what happens is private equity comes in and there's a lot of demand mm-hmm. at that level and multiples go up a step at that point as a result because there's more money competing for those deals. Mm-hmm. Right down the really small end, the businesses, as you were saying, are just too small to support themselves. But also they're small enough that transitions between family members or between management just kind of happen. Like businesses are almost just kind of transferred from one place to the other. Yeah. There's like no choice, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it's like you're going to finance this yeah. seller's note. Like, please be able to afford yeah. my salary while you also get an increase yeah, just, in your salary while like this happens. kind of buy, buying, a, buying a job. But then, then there's this gap in between, which is probably around mm-hmm. half to one million of earnings to up around that kind of four to four and a half million of earnings. And and this is that that spot where kind of search and ETA definitely comes in and kind of um, a buyer, I guess a buyer kind of like I was, that's got, it's kind of a semi-financial buyer, but also an operational buyer. And, and I do think that at the smaller mm-hmm. end of that scale, there is... There is a need for the buyer to bring the operational leadership as well, because, like you're saying, like you, you, the business itself doesn't have the capacity to employ the resources required to grow it out of its current size range, and and that's why it hasn't grown out of its size range, right? Because it hasn't 
used its own funds to do that. So you kind of do need to provide that little bit of injection to get it through that part of the growth journey. But in terms of... What's super interesting to me, Pete, that I was going to say that that, uh, the like the fact that you don't have SBAs and, and, and I don't need to know exactly what the funds that you, that you guys uh, accumulated, but I just find it so interesting because people in their thirties and forties, like unless they worked at, you know, big, large corporate America jobs and made hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of dollars and squirreled away this stuff, maybe in their 401k afterwards, it's just difficult to build enough equity. And especially maybe it's because of the SBA where there's overbidding, where the prices yeah. just don't work Pete sometimes. Cause you're like, okay, if I save the half million bucks, you know, I can only, I tap out the SBA at 5 million, but like, I might need to go get a million or two mm. in equity in order to be able to even yeah. compete. It's just a, it's a, it's a different, it's a more difficult jigsaw puzzle to. Like, yeah. To but if fit. you, if you were to take that kind of half a million, so just say you did have half a million of, of, of savings that you could put into this in an Australian context, you could probably, you know, fund an acquisition up to one or one and a half million dollars to, uh, in terms of equity value, uh, in terms of enterprise value, sorry, um, including kind of half to one mil of debt, uh, and and mm-hmm. the kind of multiples that you'd have to pay for a business that has earnings of between four and seven hundred thousand dollars is probably between two and a half and three and a half times. So it's probably a business that's worth about one and a half to two million dollars, right? And a business with earnings of mm-hmm. half a million mm-hmm. dollars. Is actually has actually got enough momentum, you know, that it's probably got revenue of to two to three, depending mm-hmm. on its earnings margin. Um, it's probably got kind of ten to fifteen people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, and it's probably been founded by um, a person or a couple of people ten to fifteen years ago from scratch, and has been going along pretty well for the last five years, producing some cash, and they just haven't you know, done the work necessary to grow it to the next stage. And and, and that could be a great little business for, for someone to buy. Mm-hmm. And particularly if then you put in that context kind of two operators that pull their funds to go through that process, it is actually possible to get a deal away at that kind of size. Because in so in, in Australia, um, normal businesses, like let's, let's keep out of the kind of VC, high growth, you know, high tech software kind of situation at the moment, right? Yeah, um, that works. That works for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah they, people make normal, stuff and yeah, do things so normal, and yeah, sell things, right? <laughs> normal businesses um, at the moment with earnings between, let's call it one and four million should trade in a range between kind of at the bottom end two and a half times earnings and at the top end maybe five times earnings. So, yeah, if you're up at the four million of earnings and the five times. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I got to I, I got to laugh. I got to laugh right now, Pete, because I'm watching. I'm seriously watching companies that are doing four times EBITDA going for yeah. 10 times. Four million EBITDA going for 10 times. I mean, it's, it's right now specifically it's and, beyond insane. Yeah. Like, I mean – I got I got I got people that I know that they're they've got their company teed up to sell to a PE firm and they've already got that PE firm's yeah. already got other PE firms behind them waiting for yeah. it's just packed. and that's where and that's <laughs> where ridiculous. I think it, it, when you start to push that at the bottom end of the private equity spectrum you can actually really start to get that uptick because there is so much money and the other problem is that a lot of these uh, over the last couple of years you've seen all these private equity firms that say 10 years ago 
were all crowing about doing massive deals. So they're all about the really, really big deals, right? And they're all chasing for the biggest deal. And what happened is that got so competitive and overpriced that over the last kind of, particularly the last five years, I think I've noticed, they're all chasing for the smallest deals and they're all raising what they call growth funds, which really just means they're doing smaller deals. It's just a fancy way of saying I'm going to buy smaller businesses. Um, <laughs> I know, but, right? <laughs> but what that means is they're all now chasing down this bottom end and they know that they can't go much below that four or five earnings because then the model just breaks at that point. But yeah, I mean, if if you can mm-hmm. if you can get a business earnings up to four or five million, you'll suddenly get you'll. It, it's like you've got a ticket to the bigger ball game, right? Like previously, you're playing down here, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you move on to a completely different field. So so yeah, and and mm-hmm. I mean, effectively for an economic buyer of a much smaller business, it, it's a it's a really nice thing to have happening because you know that if you can actually grow a business from mm-hmm. 1 million earnings to 4 million earnings, there's a fantastic exit waiting for you. So Let, let's unpack that because, so, uh, you know, you've, you've sold mm-hmm. two of these companies and the only reason you buy a business is to grow value and have options and choices and wealth yes. and freedom. So like, what are, what was your process or like your strategies that you, once you buy it, then what? And there's in two while you're answering this two two components of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on is one is for your role. I mean, it's I saw that you had you know you had gone in and you'd worked as a CEO, but then worked yourself out. That's very difficult for a lot of founders, and they've most people don't figure out how to do that. So curious on how you did that, and then strategies to actually increase the multiple. So like as you're reinvesting, how are you intentionally focused on things that were going to grow yeah. enterprise value? So. So yeah, lo- lots of things I can talk about there. So yeah, we <laughs> we went into all of our investments without any exit plans. So <clears throat> a lot of people, when they go to buy a business, they tie themselves in knots trying to predetermine who they're going to sell to and when. We just thought, let's, as you said before, we just thought, let's just buy some businesses, make them good, and then you know, that'll give us options. We can either hold them because they're making good money or if if there's an opportunity to sell, we can take that opportunity. With the ones that we sold, they sold much sooner than we thought they would, but, you know, the offers were good and so we, we sold. And, and so it's also just about without looking, you've got to be ready because you never know when that call's going to come, right? And that's a really important point, I think, for a lot of business owners out there. I think it's really important to make sure you've got your house in order because it it makes for a better business and it makes for a more profitable business, but it definitely also means that if someone does suddenly come knocking, you're not scrambling trying to work out how to make your business look good because you're already comfortable that it does, right? So so in terms of... But the problem with that, one, one comment on that, Pete, is that you've got the, like when you're reinvesting... And you said you so you're making a more profitable business, and this this is a concept that I've been trying to hammer through to a lot of people over the years. Is that you have to reinvest to mm. build a more valuable business. So you might you're going to have more profit margins, but this whole like addbacks and EBITDA, EBITDA is going to be growing, but you're going to have to reinvest in yep. order to get that. And they 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 hit this ceiling of how much they need to take yep. home from the business. So what were you doing to reinvest in things that are actually yeah. going to grow value? Did like, what were some of the so, strategies? So we didn't, that? we didn't take dividends for years. Um, our, our businesses were in an, in an actual sense, kind of only breaking even 
um, because of that reinvestment process. But we were very deliberate about saying, okay, what is the underlying business earning? It's earning X, and then we're reinvesting X in new people, like new regions, new products, all that um, increased and improved back office operations, all those kinds of things. In terms of growing the business, what what we did with I'll use one of the examples. So when we went into let's use the first business, what we looked at was said, okay, what are all the parameters against which we can grow? So usually with these businesses, because they're relatively small, the easiest, like the the lowest hanging fruit usually is regional growth. So, you know, I buy a painting business in city XYZ and now I'm going to like open up an operation in city ABC, right? Like like you you grow your operation to a point in a particular location where you think, okay, now I just want to replicate that in another location. So it's it's a relatively easy growth. What 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 companies did you buy? What were the what were the different services? I, I, I don't know if I caught that. So with, with the mining, the one that I was, I'll use the example that I was using before. So with that mining services business that, that we bought, it was operating out of Sydney. Um, and really most of its exposure was to a lot of the mines that were in this state. Um, it had a little bit of exposure to mining operations in other states, but not really. And so what we did was we grew it here and got that platform relatively stable. And we grew that by a lot of, it, it's almost... We recruited ahead of the curve. We knew that our technical services team was really our lever to revenue because if we could sell things and sell Mm. services, we needed to be able to resource those. And a lot of the way to win in that business is to be available first. So when there's a breakdown, when there's a problem, if you can get your guide on site first, then you know that you'll probably be able to at least have the first crack at the job. And but what that requires, though, to your hmm. point, it requires you to invest in unutilized people. <laughs> you've got to start saying, like, you know, you'd say to the existing owner, you, you've got three technicians, we need five. And he'd say, but I don't have work for five. And then you'd say, well, you're not going to get the work for five unless you've got five, right? So so we went out and actually recruited. <laughs> we, we recruited these people before we needed them. And that enabled us, like utilization dropped, profitability dropped, but suddenly we had capacity, right? So then we could start to service more sites. And then it was just a matter of saying, okay, well, now we want to um, open up an operation in Brisbane, which is is the, the capital of, of the state to our north. And there were a few competitors that we potentially looked at buying, but the prices that they were after for their businesses were just way too high. So we had to recruit for that position. So we found two guys to recruit, a a kind of more senior manager guy um, and a really capable technician um, up in Brisbane. And we recruited them. We rented some space, put up a a signboard and started them selling in and around that location. And and interestingly, that that Brisbane office grew very, very quickly, um, not least of which because those two guys are awesome. And that guy that we recruited to run that Brisbane office ended up becoming the CEO that, that replaced me. But but re- recruiting in that business made a big difference and that was where we spent the money because it's a it's a people business and it's a services business. To use another example, we we bought a a technology kind of industrial product manufacturer in in Canberra, which is um, just to the south of where I am here. And 
that business, the growth parameter for that business was production capacity, not servicing capacity, right? So, so they designed a really interesting product mm. and they were continuing to manufacture it effectively out of the R&D lab, right? So they hadn't, they designed a really great product and they'd engineered it really, really well, but they hadn't designed it for manufacture. So they could produce X number of products, but they couldn't actually scale above that because their manufacturing processes weren't scalable. So where we invested there was less around (laughs) recruiting more people and it was around buying more space, like increasing and improving the workflow around manufacture, outsourcing the manufacture of certain sub-assemblies. So investing in what what is it that is going to increase the capacity of this business and you have to invest in capacity, it's not exactly like that movie where they say build it and they will come. You don't want to be completely blind, right? But but, but you, do need, you do need to understand what, what capacity is your constraint right now and how can you invest reasonably in that capacity to create the ability for you to grow into it. That's fantastic, man. And, and, what's, and I don't know if this is kind of an assumption, but like when you said that there's no, there's no headwinds on these companies or industries, because like what you, if you're focused on capacity, that's kind of given the fact that if you, you know, in, you know, if you push down the throttle on sales a little bit or whatever sales is working, then you could grow more versus, Hey, growth is stalled. This industry is hit, you know, it's saturated. I mean, I'm assuming you kind of stayed away from companies and industries like that. So it's, it's interesting. So this is where I, you know, when I was talking about industry, when you're buying businesses that are frankly, this small, you need to worry a little bit about industry, but not a lot. So you need to make sure that you're not completely swimming upstream because if 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 the the weight of the industry is just pushing against you constantly, it's going to be very difficult. But you don't need the industry itself to push you along because if you're small enough, most of your growth is going to come from taking market share rather than the market as a whole growing. So we actually bought our business in- Isn't that the truth, man? Yeah. So we bought our business in mining services in a mining downturn, (laughs) and it grew year on year for the last (laughs) eight years. At the same time as as everyone that would tell you anything about mining in that period of time was saying that the industry was going backwards. And so I think think a a lot when you're in a very small business- is how well you compete tactically day to day rather than necessarily what's happening to your industry as a whole. It's interesting that you say that, uh, Pete, because we had a client that, that uh, in the manufacturing, I will, won't say the, the exact specifics, mm-hmm. but like literally they're like $15 million and like, oh, we got to diversify it. Nah, nah, nah. And like my business partner was like, you realize that you have one and a half percent of yeah. total market value here. Yeah. Or I don't even know if it was even in the single yeah. single digits. It's like just go do what you're doing more in other places and more. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. not that yeah, more of it. Totally. <laughs> I, it's absolutely right. Right, like like if you if you get the perspective of there's there's almost never been a time when I've um, been involved in a business where I've suddenly thought you know what we're capped out. There's probably one business that I'm still involved in right now where we're getting close to that, but that's in a very specific marketplace. But, but yeah, more often than not, it's exactly as you say. Like, have a think about your total addressable market. Have a think about how much of that you currently have, mm-hmm. 
would it be good if you could double your revenue? The answer is probably yes. Well, in order to do that, you only need to take another 0.25 percentage of points of the market in order to double your like <laughs> right. you'll, you'll you'll probably be okay, right? You just gotta you just gotta you know do that um, daily tactical competition is is what it all comes down to, and and you know I, I think there's usually with these businesses there are two elements that seem to show up often in terms of business improvement, and one is business operations. So they, they've usually been a little bit starved in relation to really improving their back office operations and the efficiency and, and effectiveness and accuracy and reliability of their operations. And that goes to things like accounting and, and reporting and internal processes. You know, you often find a lot of paper processes. You often find a lot of duplication, you know, multiple checkpoints when there could be one, you know, all these things that have just been layered mm-hmm. on top of each other over time for the comfort of the owner when they're not necessarily needed for the efficient operation of the business. So business operations is usually, you know, if ever I go into a new one of these businesses, I'm pretty certain there's going to be opportunity with operations. Mm-hmm. The other one is everything in that whole realm of sales and marketing. So usually the response will be, oh, yeah, we've grown mainly through word of mouth. Oh, we don't usually need a great website. We don't need lead generation because all the work comes to us. Everyone knows that we're great and that's why we get all this good work, right? So, um, which is excellent, right? <laughs> that, that means they are doing good work. But it also means that if you want to rapidly increase revenue, there's probably not a lot you need to do to their marketing and sales um, methods to have a relatively mm-hmm. big impact. So th- those, d- like, it's it's unlikely you're not going to find value in business operations and kind of sales marketing um, in terms of top line growth. Super interesting that you say that, Pete. So like, there's been hundred, like, I think we're close to like 400 people now that have gone through our training in the last 18 months or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, mm-hmm. because I, I'm seeing like, like real companies, kind of like when you see in deals too, like you just get this kind of like themes that you see. And the part of our, the intentional growth framework literally came from Almost every time you buy the business, so or like if the current owner you start it, you get your financials in order so you can actually clearly see where everything's at and you get a valuation. So you have a, a, a stake in the sand, strategic plan, sales and marketing. Yeah. <laughs> and like yep. every time that ends yep. up being it. And then you execute like hell. Like it just it, it's almost yep. it, it's it's part of our process because the market and the the volume just showed it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and and you know one of the things is um, it, it's a bit it's a bit like lighting a campfire. You you want to make sure you've got you know how when you're lighting a campfire for the first bit, you're constantly feeding it leaves and sticks and more wood and and you, you have to tend to it the entire time, and then it suddenly gets to this tipping point where it's got its own kind of core of of heat and energy, and then you can walk away mm-hmm. from it for a bit. And come back and it might need another stick here or a log there, but it it's kind of it's got its own self-perpetuating heat. I think a lot of businesses that are down at this smaller level have almost never got to that self-perpetuating heat point. And so the the owners are constantly dragged into them because they're constantly having to put more sticks on the fire to keep it going. The real kind I of the love first- that analogy, man. I, I- mm. No, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say that, that that after you buy one of these businesses, the first horizon should be to get to that tipping point. After that, then you've got options. But but the, the first step should be to get to that tipping point. 
Well, and it's super interesting. Like I love the analogy, Pete, because it, it literally goes back to my original question about the cash flow and the ability to reinvest. Because like those those are own coal, like the 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 embers or whatever, like the coal mm. is like the cash flow is the oxygen. And like so many times, these entrepreneurs are taking the distributions out when they should be reinvesting for growth. And yeah. so they're like, they're suffocating their own company versus just shifting their mindset. And like, then putting that to get to that tipping point themselves. So yeah. outside of the sales and marketing and the operations, um, you know, before we get into, I got a couple of questions as, as we're getting close to the, the wrap up is like, how, hmm. you know, how did you go about working yourself out of the business as a CEO once you were hmm. in there? And then the hmm. second question to that, and I don't know if this is directly, it's not directly correlated, but why you like you know with these four companies how you how you chose those versus reinvesting in the same one and so like as you're looking at your time because you you're just one person then you got four companies how to, how did you manage all that yeah so it, I mean the the first question is a really great question and I think that you know delegation is such an important skill for, for everyone and anyone and it's such a difficult skill. And for me, I think it's something that I am still constantly working on because I think that it's such a powerful skill to have. And the real challenge of it is, you know, that whole thing around it'd be easier if I just did it myself or no one else is going to get it done right, so I'll just do it myself or to train this other person is going to take as long as what it would take for me to do it myself or, you know, like... I think one of the things about delegation is you need to really focus on outcome rather than method because there is no way that anyone else is going to do that thing the same way that you do it. So you need to be able to focus your energy on what you're trying to achieve and so therefore what you need them to achieve as opposed to how you want it done and so therefore how they should do it. And hey, Pete, and we've always that, used to we always had these pieces of paper, and we always used to have these carbon copies. And trust yep. me, this is the way that we got to do it. We're just like, yeah, what are we trying to accomplish here? <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. And and being outcomes focused is really challenging. I think you know when I was in my corporate career, I I I went through a whole range of kind of those corporate training programs as you progress through your career. And they talk about, you know, being an operator and then being a manager of operators and then being a manager of managers. And like, as you continue to progress, you're mm -hmm. getting further and further away from the coalface. You know, you're getting further and further away from the, the action of the people that are actually doing it. And, and so there's a whole bunch of kind of analogies that I talk about when thinking of, of this whole delegation process, but definitely raising kids is a great example for delegation, right? Like there's no way that I can control the way in which they do anything, right? But 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 hopefully by providing <laughs> the guidance, I can get them to achieve the outcome I'm after, right? But but the other thing is, and and I'm I'm a long way from being a green thumb or being a, a gardener. Like I don't mind mowing a lawn every now and then, but I'm I'm definitely not planting roses or anything. But but gardening is a really good analogy for delegation because I think you get to a point where you need to learn how to create the environment even if you don't have complete control over the plant, over the way in which the plants are going to grow. Now, you, you can do things like make sure that if there are weeds, you pull them out and 
you're providing the right fertilizer and you're making space for the right sunlight and all that kind of stuff. But who knows if your tree is going to grow to the left or grow to the right or, you know, grow flowers this season or next season or, you know, like it's very different. You're not controlling that. You're the gardener. You're there to provide the environment. It's then up to them as to how they're going to promote in that environment. And what you need to then do as the gardener is take ownership for the fact that if they don't grow in the right way or they don't grow as fast as what you'd hoped or weeds do start popping up around the place, like that is your fault because you've created the environment and they are going to be there growing as well as they can in that environment. So it's a bit like as you get further and further down this delegation path, you get further and further from holding the wheel. Another another analogy I use a bit, which is um, I do I really enjoy sailing, and it's a bit like when you've got a boat and you're holding the wheel, right? So, so you're actually doing the sailing. You're making those decisions on the fly as to how to sail this boat and how to sail to the wind and how to trim the sails. The delegation piece is just slowly stepping further and further away, right? So you're going to put someone else on the helm. So someone else is going to grab the wheel and you're going to sit behind them but you can't grab the wheel all the time, right? Because you'll put them off. So you're going to sit behind them, and sometimes they'll <laughs> turn left when you thought, yeah, when you thought they should have turned right. Um, they'll trim the sails when you thought that they should have let them out. Um, all sorts of things. But ultimately, how are you going to become a better coach rather than a better skipper? And how are you going to take advantage of the opportunity to learn how to get good at making them better? And it's 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 a really difficult process to go through but it's absolutely necessary if you want to sell your business if you want to become redundant from your business so you can get out of the day-to-day management and eventually you get to a point with that boat analogy where you're going to stay on shore right so you're going to sit on the shore and the boat's going to sail off into the harbor and then you've still got to have confidence that it's not going to hit the rocks so delegation is is really and the the one difference this is I and, and I'm an analogy, I'm an analogy junkie too. So you are just striking so many good chords here. The only <laughs> difference I would the thing I would add to your sailboat analogy is that they're shipping money back to you yeah, from yeah, the ocean yeah. while you're sitting yeah. on shore. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, that's right. Well, so and, yeah. So I, I, know I just think the delegation thing is is a really big challenge. It, it's not easy. And if anything, it's it's the biggest reason why uh, founder-led businesses hit a glass ceiling is because mm-hmm. they only can make it to a certain number of people. They can only get to a team of 10 or 15 because to get bigger than that, you need to delegate leadership to people below you who can then manage other people, right? By the time, it, it's like almost like a natural limit. If you've got a business that's got 30 or 35 people in it, you just naturally have to have a few layers in there of people leading other people. And if you're not comfortable to delegate leadership, you're never going to crack through that point. So when you think about like as someone that owns multiple businesses, because like a lot of the people listening, even if they, you know, they're looking to acquire and sometimes it's like, Hey, maybe we acquire outside of our industry. So like, what was Mm. your decision process to say, Hey, like we're going to like, how did you go pick those other three while then leveraging your time of managing those, those that portfolio. So, so I mean, one, one of the advantages that we had was that there were two of us. And so whilst I was in running the business, um, my business partner was um, continuing to look for, for other potential opportunities. 
and we always had this plan that that we'd kind of drop in and run for a period of time and then and then kind of grow and and become redundant some of it was opportunistic so you know because our networks we already had networks in that kind of accounting investment banking kind of space once all those people started to realize what we were doing we started to have a bit of deal inflow um, which was good mm-hmm. and effectively we we continued to see hundreds of deals so we continued to see the same kind of flow like lots and lots of deals on a on a monthly basis but we just kept looking for the same types of parameters that we were looking for before now with one of the businesses that we bought in 2015 the size was a little bit too big for us to fund for ourselves. And so we partnered with one high net worth um, to become a co-shareholder in that. So we didn't raise a fund, but we got some additional funds in from from a a friendly, um, which was good. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that just gave us that little bit of extra capital we needed to buy something that was just slightly bigger than, than what we could afford with our own available capital. And, and yeah, it was just a matter of, you know, there was a period in time when I was, running effectively two businesses, two very different businesses at the same time. But I'd kind of got the first one to a point where the team in there was more uh, self-reliant than what they were before. Um, And so I could kind of juggle between the two of those relatively well. So Did you ever feel like you had too many balls in the air when you were juggling? Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Good. Thank you for being honest. I love it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like I'm trying to remember the year, but I definitely remember <laughs> that it was about this time of year. Actually, it was it was October. It might have been October 2017, and I was on a um, on a camping trip with my family and a, f- a few other families. <laughs> and I remember just like waking up one morning. You know, when you're on a camping trip and you wake up in the morning and get out of the tent and no one else is awake and you're you're sitting there on the grass or whatever, waiting for the sun to rise, and just thinking. Holy crap! Like, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Have we have we bitten off more than more than we can chew right now? But um, but it's a bit like um, I don't know if you um, I don't know if you snow ski, but um, but I, I really like skiing. It's like when you're you're hurtling down the hill and and the run's clear, right? So there's no one there. You can just fully mack it straight down the hill, and and you go for a really big big wide turn out to the edge next to the tree line. And as you're going around, you've you've got your edge, and and you're feeling good. But but then there's just this part of you that thinks if if I lose an edge at this exact point, I'm in the trees, right? But you know that if you just hold on, you'll be okay. So it's it's a little bit like that. There are definitely times when you feel like I just need to hold this little bit together, and we'll get out the other side of this. So, but I but I think that's that's the that's the kind of life life and times of a business owner, right? And that and that's it's exactly to the mm-hmm. point that I said mm-hmm. right at the beginning of this conversation, that corporate life just wasn't giving me that same level of kind of accountability and, and effectively Yeah, that that I wanted. And and then suddenly like I really was in the hot seat. Um and so, you know, that's what I asked for <laughs> and that's what I got and and that's what I've enjoyed doing. I love it, man. And so I know we're we're, we're short uh, we got a couple minutes left. Um you know, we don't have to get too much into it. I just want to, uh, for your exits. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, what it was like being on the other side when you sold those two. Anything that you learned 
that became more of the truth because you emotionally experienced it versus like intellectually going, Oh, I know like this is what the people that, you know, I bought the company, what they went through is what, what was some of the insights or takeaways you had from selling the companies? Yeah. So I think, I, I think going through the sales process again is a little bit like that delegation process we were thinking before, like the, the people coming in to say they want to buy it, have got their own ideas of what they want to do with it. And you need to be ready to kind of be open to those ideas. Um, because because in in that exploration phase, you don't want to be constantly shooting down new ideas that the new buyer might have because then, frankly, you're just going to put them off anyway, right? Like, you know, oh, we're thinking mm-hmm. we might do this business after we buy it. What do you think? If you say, oh, that's a stupid idea, then, <laughs> you know, you're not necessarily generating the right environment for them to be wanting to buy your business. So you do need to be open-minded about what the new owners might be wanting to do after after they've bought it. And I was even I was I was talking to my wife last night about this. Like, you need to be in a position where you can be proud of what your business becomes, even years after you've sold it, because it doesn't mean you necessarily need to be proud of what the new owners have done with it. But you should be proud of the fact that you got it to here, so they can take it to there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people think that kind of their journey ends when they sell it and then after that, like, I'm just going to forget about that thing because someone else owns it. But, you know, the only reason they own it is because you built it and the, the only reason it can get to wherever they take it is because you got to got it to where you took it, right, and you, you need to be really proud of that point. So I think being being really proud of getting it to the point where someone else is interested in buying it um, will help you let go of those things you need to let go of in going through the sales process. I think interestingly, the the two that we sold, as I said, they sold probably sooner than we had expected. So yeah, I, I really I really love both of them. But the the one that we bought back in 2013, we we still own today. Now that one, when we get to the point where that goes for sale, which I think is still a few years away yet, but I think emotionally for me will be a lot more similar to a lot of the other sellers that I've dealt with who have been in their business for 10 or 15 years. So I don't think I've yet experienced the full emotional kind of, you know, separation process um, as a business owner because it's probably Mm -hmm. that one where I've, you know, I literally have taken it from, you know, five employees to 35 employees and, um, and it's continuing to grow. You know, it, it is a, lot, a much more of an emotional journey with that one. So it'll be interesting to see how I handle it at that point. I, the jury's still out, but I hope that I can listen to my own advice at, at that point. There's a, there's a really good book, Pete, called uh, Finish Big by Bo Burlingham that uh, I read afterwards. Talks a lot about that. And you actually almost verbatim said like the most happy entrepreneurs are the ones that are proud of how it all went down. Mm. I mean, summed up very you know, which there's a lot underneath the being proud. What does that mean? Um, but, you know, they felt like they were treated fairly and, you know, they're proud of how it all went down. So it's interesting. But, uh, you know, last question, I would say the two last questions as we're wrapping up here is uh, one is I love to ask the word what the word intentional means, because it's the name of the show. And I think uh, it's just a fantastic word. So what does the word intentional mean to you, Pete? So. For me, it means kind of being deliberate, like not 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 taking things by chance. And you know, there's always that situation where people think if they either don't make a decision or postpone a decision, that they're 
that they're not making a decision, but by by default you are. You know, you're deciding not to decide, right? Like I think being deliberate and intentional is about saying, you know what, I don't know all of the answers. I don't know, um, I don't have 100% resolution on what the environment or the picture is in front of me right now, but I know enough to make a decision and I'm going to make that decision and I'm going to move forward with intention, right? So, and I know that when I take that step forward, part of it's going to be wrong, but that's okay because at least it's going to be a confident, intentional step. And when I finish taking that step, I can then look around again with the new information I've got and make another intentional step forward. So, you know, we were talking about um, the sailing analogies before. Sailing is very, very much like that. Like who knows when you're tacking your way down a bay whether you should tack now or later or sooner, whether you should head upwind or downwind, whether or not there's a gust coming, like you don't know. But at that point where you've got your hand on the wheel and you say to your crew, we're going to tack now, we're going to change direction, you don't kind of half do it or don't say, oh, let's just not make that decision now, let's <laughs> wait a bit. Like by waiting a bit, you've decided to wait or by tacking, you've decided to decide. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to decide, then, you know, put your intention behind it and, and make it happen. And because the other thing about being intentional, being truly intentional, I think, is actually acknowledging that there's a high likelihood that you'll be wrong and that's okay because at least if you go forward with confidence, then you can continually course correct as you're going. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas if you weren't intentional in your decision-making, how will you ever know like how right or wrong you were in order to improve for the next decision? So, yeah, intentional for me is about just being deliberate and making confident steps knowing full well that you're never going to be 100% right. Pete, that is fantastic, man. I absolutely love it. If people want to find you, your podcast, uh, your services, what's the best way to reach you? Um, well, definitely on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm, I'm relatively active on LinkedIn. You can always send me a message on there or, or connect up with me on there. I post most of my stuff on there as well. So um, if there's anything of interest, um, I've got a website where I host stuff, which is just peteseligman.com.au. But yeah, probably LinkedIn is probably the easiest for people to reach out and and like I'm I'm really keen to speak to anyone in this space just because I, I love it. It's it's like um it's like a sport for me. I, I really enjoy kind of hearing hearing the stories and kind of thinking about the challenges and so yeah, happy to chat. Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I had a blast. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in for that interview with Pete. I had a blast talking to Pete. He just, like how much of a salt of the earth guy he is and walking through how he left corporate America to funding the deals, to jumping as CEO, growing these companies and then selling them. I think, you know, one of the big takeaways that I had is that First of all, it's possible to grow yourself out of your job as CEO. So many people think it's not possible and Pete shows that it is without having to be some cold hearted asshole. Like you can actually go in there, care about the people, care about the company, but still work yourself out with a plan. And I just think that that the second big takeaway is that Pete did this these projects, when I call projects, I mean, he invested in these companies, grew them up and sold them without having to be some like corporate raider. Like he cares about the company and the people and everything that's going on. So he's creating economic value, which translates to enterprise value and making people's lives better and companies better 
but also realizing that these are financial assets that have value that can be traded to some other investor, other uh, strategic buyer without having to sell your soul. I just really like how he threaded the needle and it just really is a, a wonderful example of conscious capitalism and play coming from the lens of acquisition through or entrepreneurship through acquisition. And whether you have a company or whether you're looking to go buy a company, I think there's a lot to be learned from Pete because of how he balances the, you know, his identity and who he, you know, believes he is. And then how he relates that to these companies that he's buying and growing them as a financial asset. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you want to know more about entrepreneurship through acquisition, valuations, deal structures, all the different exits, how to grow value, financial management, strategic planning, plus a bunch more, go check out the intentional growth training at arcona.io. There's a do-it-yourself version, or you can do it with me over four coaching calls. It's either a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks. And you can go check out the curriculum and a bunch of videos on the website. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you next week.